Hello, and welcome to season three of the Fixing Healthcare podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions and host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our monthly podcast aimed at addressing the failures of the American healthcare system and finding solutions to make it once again the best in the world. In this our third season, we turn to the world of politics and the role of government in healthcare. This is our seventh and final episode in this season. We've heard from two presidential candidates, two people who have served previous presidential administrations, two individuals who have battled with the government, and a writer who has approached the problem of regulation through satire and parody. We've received hundreds of comments from listeners on the role they believe government should play in fixing American healthcare, and read over a dozen of the best on previous shows. Their diverse solutions have included Congress reining in excessive drug and hospital prices, providing universal health care coverage, focusing on social issues like housing and nutrition, protecting the current private health care system, and strengthening ongoing programs including Medicare and Medicaid. Today we'll have the opportunity to interview Dr. David Shulkin. He is a physician who served as the ninth United States Secretary of Veteran Affairs from 2017 to 2018. In his role, he was responsible for the medical care of over 9 million veterans through the VA hospital system. Dr. Shulkin was dismissed by President Donald Trump over the extent of privatization in these services. He described his experience in a recently published book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country. Prior to becoming the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, David served as the Undersecretary for Veterans Affairs for Health under President Obama, President and CEO of Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City, and Chairman of Medicine and Vice Dean at Drexel University College of Medicine. Welcome, David. It's a privilege to have you on our Fixing Healthcare podcast. You were both the Undersecretary of Veterans Affairs for President Obama, and then you became the Secretary of Veterans Affairs for President Trump. In your book, you talk about the difference in styles of these two executives. Can you tell listeners about them and the advantages of one versus the other? I think most of the listeners understand that there's a big difference in style between President Obama and President Trump. Uh, Interestingly, I experienced them in very different ways. Both cared very deeply about veterans and making sure that we were doing the right things, but they had different approaches. President Obama was very thoughtful, analytic, and careful in policymaking and decision-making, where President Trump was much more willing to move quickly and take risks. And so Uh, For me, since I had been in government and when I became secretary, I had a plan. I had a formula for what needed to happen where I felt like we were being too cautious in the Obama administration. And that worked well for me in the Trump administration because I would just say to the president that I felt like we needed to do the following things. But there were some risks associated with them politically. And he would say, well, look, if it's a good thing for veterans, 
go ahead and do it and, and I'll have your back. And so it was, uh, both times were very productive, but I actually felt like we were able to move very, very quickly in the Trump administration to get a lot done. You also describe in your book in great detail, the difficulties of going through a confirmation process. Uh, you talk about two different experiences, each of which was somewhat problematic, both in your first appointment as the undersecretary and then the second one as the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. Can you summarize your experience and the lessons that you learned? I don't think that the confirmation process or the vetting that occurs with the presidential appointee is necessarily difficult. It is cumbersome. It is lengthy. And I think the time that it often takes to get a Senate confirmation ends up leaving an organization without the leadership in place for too long a period of time. For me, I was in the private sector all of my career. And when I was approached about joining government, I had to make some pretty tough decisions in order to leave my private sector job, not only moving to Washington, but taking a significant salary decrease, divesting from all of my investment that could represent a conflict, and then going through all of my public speaking and all of my publications to make sure that uh, there was nothing that would present a problem to the administration. So it was a lengthy process, about a year in the Obama administration, in the Trump administration, we've seen that process shorten significantly. As someone who is an outsider to the government, what you wrote about in the hold process, where a single senator can stop a confirmation from proceeding, that struck me as a very friction-generating uh, approach to running a government. Yeah, probably most of your readers don't understand that. When you're going through a Senate confirmation process, a single senator can raise an objection that's called a hold, and that can stop the process of the confirmation right in its tracks. Uh, in my case, uh, during the Obama administration, I had four Senate holds. All of them turned out to be Democrats. Uh, and the issues really had nothing to do with me personally, but were more issues that the senators were not able to get the White House's attention on. And so they used the Senate hold process as a way to bring attention to issues that had been important to them. In the Again, in the case of the Obama administration, they mostly had to do with the issue of Agent Orange dating back 50 years to the Vietnam War that the senators didn't feel that uh, there were appropriate benefits being given to veterans who had been exposed to Agent Orange. So it gives the senator a chance to be able to get heard and have the White House address their issues, particularly if the White House wants to see their nominee get through in an expedited fashion. But it is a process that actually, to me, delays good candidates from getting their confirmation for unrelated issues. And so there has to be a better way of getting the issues addressed by the senators than for them to raise these objections just to get the attention of the White House. For listeners who may not know, of course, in the end, you were confirmed 100 to zero. It's almost impossible to imagine that getting through the Senate today on any issue would have that unanimous conclusion. So congratulations, sir. 
Yeah, well, again, for me, the issue of veterans should be a bipartisan issue. It should be outside of the traditional political divisions that we see so much in this country. And so I was very proud that I worked both as undersecretary and as secretary in a bipartisan fashion. In fact, most senators and congressmen who worked with me had no idea if I was a Republican or Democrat. And that was exactly the way I wanted it, because when you're dealing with improving the lives of veterans, that really should not be a Democratic or Republican issue. You write in your book about D.C. gamesmanship and that it's not just the right plan, but the right alignment of interests. What did you mean by that? In almost everything that I had to do as secretary, I had to uh, make sure that I not only felt that it was the right decision and right policy for the veterans, but for the taxpayers, but I would have to make sure that there was a aligned interest between the legislative branch, the members of Congress that had to vote almost almost everything that we wanted to do from a policy perspective, but also from the executive branch, which is the White House, as well as the veteran service groups that represented so many American veterans and the employees in VA, over 400,000 of them, that were very powerful. And if you wanted to implement change, you had to make sure that your workforce supported it. So in everything that you did, you really needed to make sure that you understood the perspectives and could explain the reason why you were trying to make change to each of those groups, as well as the American public, because the American public with 21 million American veterans out there care deeply about this issue, and it's covered extensively in the press. So the job of secretary really is to make sure that you not only have the right plan, but that you have the support among the various groups to make sure that it can move forward and get implemented successfully. Before you took these public service jobs, you were president and chief executive officer of Beth Israel Medical Center in New York City, president of Morristown Medical Center, and had multiple other very, very senior roles, chief medical officer, et cetera. How do these leadership accountabilities compare to leading the VA? I think that leadership that is successful transforms the various environments that one is in. It's important to lead with uh, transparency. It's important to lead with integrity. And it's important to lead based on principles and to be able to uh, articulate what those principles are and then uh, stand up for what you believe in. And I think that the leadership positions that I've held throughout my career all helped prepare me for the public service that I took on in the Department of Veteran Affairs. The actual work that happens in government is actually very different than the work that happens in the private sector. And one of the learnings I had to go through was to learn the various ways that you get work done in the federal government because it was so different than the way it was in the commercial sector. But general leadership principles, I think, are transferable. The specifics of the work and how you get things done in government are very different. And it was a learning curve for me that uh, took me a while. By the time I became secretary, I had been in government for a while so that I understood the ways 
that things happened. I had a formula for fixing the VA that I thought was working, and that allowed me to make significant progress during my initial time as secretary. Could you expand a little bit on those differences and how work gets done in the governmental role versus the private sector? I think it really falls into two different categories. The first is culture. The culture of the federal government is very, very mission-oriented. It operates much like the military does in the Department of Veteran Affairs, where people often wait for the leader to indicate the direction. Uh, They're often called directives in writing that once I would put a directive down on paper, it would be sent out across the system and it would be implemented pretty uh, expeditiously uh, the way that you would expect a, a military directive to be implemented as well. And so, therefore, there was considerable top-down power in the federal government where in the private sector, as the CEO of an organization, even though it was much smaller, when the CEO said something, it didn't necessarily mean it was going to be implemented that way. There were you know, doctors who worked for themselves who felt that they may not necessarily agree with that. There were uh, other groups in the organization that interpreted things in different ways. So, so I think the cultures of the organization were different, but actually the rules of how you operate the system were very different as well, too. The government has very specific procurement policies that you would not necessarily follow. There are laws and regulations about how you work in the federal government that the private sector doesn't follow. So it's actually just learning the specifics of what the rules and regulations are in operating a government agency using taxpayer dollars, how you have to get congressional approval and executive branch approval over things that when you run a private institution, you just wouldn't have those um, those requirements. You talk in the book about your experience learning about the 350,000 veterans who are waiting more than 30 days, 31 categories of relative urgency for the visits, uh, and how you very quickly made the changes to take it down to two categories and uh, be able to address the problems in one day. Uh, As an outsider, you're appalled by these delays, access problems. We'll talk about quality a little later on. And yet when I think about the physician culture, the medical culture, the same things often happen. We just don't notice it as much in the day-to-day practice of medicine in the various communities and hospitals. Do you have thoughts about how similar or or different this process of delay is in the physician culture versus in the governmental culture? I think the listeners uh, need to understand that the reason why I came the government in the first place was because of the wait time crisis that really was receiving national attention where veterans were being alleged to have been harmed, some of them dying because they weren't able to get access to care. So when I entered government, I had a mandate to fix that. And I certainly was committed that that was going to be my top priority to make sure that every veteran that needed health care was getting it in a timely fashion. So I was able to quickly assess the situation and make a determination that we needed to act quickly, that 
once I was able to identify those that had urgent medical needs to make sure that we got them seen immediately. And then we put in place same day services across every VA medical center in the United States and then published all of our wait times publicly. Still the only large healthcare system that I'm aware of that publishes its wait times in a public fashion. And I, I do think that the difference of not only having this mandate, but also having a responsibility for a defined group of patients, the Department of Veterans Affairs has responsibility for over 9 million veterans, and we take that responsibility very seriously, that allowed me to be able to say that we had to solve this problem. When you're running a private sector hospital and you don't have any access, you have long wait times, patients often have other options in the community. They can go to other hospitals or they can find other health care at alternative locations. But the Department of Veteran Affairs cannot delegate this responsibility and needs to make sure that it solves the problem. And that's the responsibility that I took seriously. What I was thinking when I asked the question, quality is a great example. As you say, you posted the outcomes for all to see. I don't think very many physicians would like to have their quality outcomes posted, easily available to patients, as well as anyone else who's interested in where the best medical care was provided. That's what I meant. It seems to me that the physician culture is equally reticent about public disclosure and educating patients. Do you have thoughts after having been in, the gov- in both roles? Well, this, um, this sense of that healthcare is different than other types of consumer demands has been something that's been very central ever since I started my career in healthcare. That uh, that many in medicine felt that healthcare was too complex to be able to describe outcomes to patients, and I've just never believed that. I've always believed that the change and improvements that happen in almost all industries are because consumers are educated and demand better value for their purchasing decisions, both in quality and cost. And I think that this has been way too slow in the coming in healthcare, so that. Wherever I have been able to throughout my career, I have pushed transparency of explaining differences in quality and value to patients because I believe they're ultimately the ones that have the biggest outcome of the decision about where they get their care. And so they should be the ones in charge of their healthcare decisions. And in order to do that, they have to understand the differences in quality among the different providers. So, so um, the ability to publish our quality data, to publish our access data uh, for veterans, I felt was one of the more important things that I could do as secretary to try to move improvement within the Department of Veteran Affairs. I have the privilege to teach at both the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Medical School. And so I'm very interested in this issue of leadership. Did anything in your medical school in Philadelphia, your internship at Yale, your internal medicine training in Pittsburgh, prepare you for the leadership roles you've had, both in the commercial sector as well as in the government? I think when most people look back upon their careers, they look upon the people that they've 
had a chance to work with, and many people describe them as their mentors or their bosses throughout their career. And I've had the great privilege of working with many great leaders. I would say that as I look back at my own leadership style, it's probably influenced by many of those leaders and mentors uh, where you often learn from your boss the things that you admire and have worked well, but you often learn from them some of the things that that didn't work so well or styles that you do not want to emulate or or replicate. And so, so I think that um, when you look back upon the years of experience, it really has been enriched by so many people who have contributed parts and pieces to the style that you now uh, call your own. And so each one of the experiences that I had in my training, in my management jobs, in my different positions, uh, I think all contributed to allow me to be effective in, in the role that I had in public service. In your book, you talk about arriving and finding out that there was a 10-month delay or wait to organize a summit on veteran suicide, a problem that became very obvious. You pointed out that during that time, 6,000 veterans would take their own lives. Why do we treat mental health so differently than everything else? And what does that imply about the governmental view on the subject? The single top priority that I had as secretary that I established as the top priority for the Department of Veteran Affairs was to reduce veteran suicide. With 20 veterans a day taking their life, uh, it was a, and still is a epidemic in the veteran population as well as the greater American public uh, health issue that we see today. I think that the Department of Veteran Affairs has really been a leader in trying to reintegrate physical care with behavioral health care, and in part because it's freed from the reimbursement barriers that we see in the private sector where mental health care and physical health care are often paid differently by different payers. The Department of Veteran Affairs gets all of its money from the U.S. taxpayer, and so therefore Healthcare is delivered in an integrated fashion where primary care and behavioral health care work together. Often, um, when I was seeing patients as a primary care physician, I would see them in the team with psychologists and psychiatrists. And so I believe that the VA has shown how to effectively integrate behavioral health care into the, into the general health care environment. But still, there are many problems that exist that lead to this issue of so many veteran suicides. And part of what a job of a leader is, is not only to set priorities, but to set the pace of how those priorities are addressed in the organization. And the clear message that I was giving, that I was giving to the organization when I said that I would not wait 10 months to create a summit for us to develop action steps was was that uh, we needed to act much quicker. We needed to act with urgency, like this was a true emergency, because I believe that it was. And if we had waited 10 months for us to develop a plan, that would be 6,000 lives that would be lost to suicide. And so we were able to do that in 30 days. And really, that required changing the way that we do business 
in the Department of Veteran Affairs. Sam Shem, who is the author of The House of God and most recently Man's Fourth Best Hospital, talks about the problem with the electronic health record and points to the VA as a possible solution. You've had a lot of experience both in the commercial world and then in the VA world of different electronic healthcare record systems. What can we learn from the VA EHR? I think when the House of God was written, uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs was one of the first systems in the country that was using a paperless system. Uh, it had developed a open source solution well before the rest of the industry. And I think that has led to many of the significant advancements that the Department of Veteran Affairs has been able to demonstrate in population health over the past uh, several decades. One of those examples is when I was secretary, I declared that I wanted to end hepatitis among all veterans in the United States. And we were able to quickly determine that we had 167,000 veterans that had positive serology for hepatitis C. And then we were able to identify those 167,000, do an outreach program to them to offer them the medications that are almost uh, certainly curative. And today there are less than 10,000 veterans who have not been treated for hepatitis C in the Department of Veteran Affairs. And we would not have been able to do that without having a integrated health record and the ability to keep our data in one source uh, and place of information in order to achieve results like that. So I do think that the Department of Veteran Affairs has demonstrated the value and utility of the electronic health record. Having said that, um, I did make a decision, a very controversial one, to move away from that original health record to a commercial system so that we could begin to tackle the issue of interoperability of data. And even with our own electronic health record, we were not able to seamlessly transfer data with the Department of Defense, which is our single most important healthcare partner. And so I made a decision to move towards a commercial system where we could interoperably exchange data with the Department of Defense and move towards interoperability with our private sector partners as well. And how's that going? It's going to be a long process. The implementation in a system as large as the Department of Veteran Affairs will be at least 10 years. Uh, the VA today is working very hard at this. They've just announced a delay in the implementation of their first hospital that they're transferring from their old system over to the new system. And I think it's a recognition that um, when you do a exchange of information systems at this scale, it needs to be done with the proper planning and taking into account how big of a management and behavior change initiative this is. And so I'm glad to see that the Department of Veteran Affairs is taking this seriously and wants its implementation to be successful. And I'm optimistic that it will be. I was fascinating reading about a decision that you made that employee termination agreements could not be done at the local level, that it would require a very senior signature up to the undersecretary level, and that after you put this in place, these problematic uh, termination agreements disappeared. What can we learn from that experience? 
Well, uh, overall, my biggest concern about the future of VA is is that um, in order to implement the type of systemic changes to modernize the system that need to be done, there's going to have to be a continuity of vision and leadership. And when I say that for the listeners, the secretary position has turned over almost every two years for a number of years. And you can imagine in a large organization where the top leadership continually is turning over, it's like a restart over of what plan for the organization. And so when it came to issues like making a big decision like its electronic health record decision, I felt that as secretary, I needed to make that decision not only uh, very carefully, but I needed to make it expeditiously so that it wouldn't drag on for years and years and then have a restart over when the new leadership team came in place. So, so I made that decision in an unusual process. I made sure that I followed the laws and regulations to make it in a correct way, but I made it in a very uh, small group of people so that we could keep the process going and bring it to a conclusion in a time period that I felt that the VA needed to do. And so uh, sometimes when you're leading an organization, you need to not only make sure you're making the right decisions, but you need to do it in the right time frames and do it in a way to set the course for the organization over the next couple of decades. On one hand, the government reflects the will of the voters and the needs of the citizens. And at the same time, you pointed out in detail in your book, you have cross currents with small segments or self-focused areas or individuals interacting with that process. It's very clear you got caught in the crossfire. What can we learn about that, both specific to you and more generally? I think that the times that we're living through right now are showing the ways that government can work and sometimes doesn't work that well on behalf of its citizens in a way that has never really been seen before. And what we're seeing is the power of political appointees throughout the administration to influence decisions that are really somewhat more political in nature rather than necessarily what is good public policy. And when it comes to the Department of Veteran Affairs, I experienced many of these political appointees trying to influence what I would call their ideology of how government should work rather than necessarily what was the right thing to do for the veterans that we served. And I've come to believe that when it comes to running a healthcare system, which the VA is responsible for 9 million veterans' lives, that we need to look towards taking this out of the political process and running it like a healthcare system. And that would mean removing the political appointees from the decision-making roles and creating what would be more of a health system board, the way that uh, government works in some other areas, like the way that 
it runs Amtrak or the Internal Revenue Service, where there is a board that oversees its operations, where there is a leader that has a term appointment rather than a traditional political appointee, so that it can actually respond to the needs of the people that it serves rather than to the political wins that are happening in government at the time. And I've really come to believe that this is too important an issue to not only our veterans, but to our country to continue to run it in the context of that this is just another political organization. The Department of Veteran Affairs mission really needs to be shielded from some of those political forces that we see on display throughout our government right now. One of the things that very much impresses me about you, David, is your sense of urgency, whether it's in the commercial area around quality, the VA around access, the changes that need to happen. Where does that sense of urgency come from in you? And to some extent, why is it missing in others? Even though I've run large organizations in an executive level throughout most of my career, I still primarily define myself as a doctor. And that's why I continue to practice medicine. And even as secretary, I would put on a white coat and stethoscope and go and take care of veterans. And when you're a doctor, you're really just looking at the patient who is sitting in front of you and you're trying to make a decision that matters a great deal to that person that sometimes can affect their lives. And to me, that is an urgent situation. That is a situation where one cannot delay or, or sort of deflect on decisions that are important for that individual. So whenever I've been in an executive role, I've always first thought of myself as a doctor and thought about my responsibility to that patient. And that's really where that urgency comes from. In reading the book, there's two conflicting narratives on one hand, I think you experienced uncertainty, frustration, ultimately dismay. And at the same time in your role, you had tremendous fulfillment and satisfaction, sense of mission and purpose. How do these two interact with each other? How do you come out of that? How do you look back at your experience having had both? Well, I think that dichotomy of, of feelings and emotions that I had clearly is accurate. I believe that when I entered government, I didn't think that this was going to be easy. Uh, and when I left government, I was had the same feeling that the future leaders are not going to find a easy environment in which to operate on. But my inspiration for working so hard and never giving up hope and for remaining optimistic were the veterans and the families that I got to know during my time in government. These are people that when the times got tough and the environments were tough in the battlefield, they never gave up. Many of them sacrificed their lives and have never come back. And so whenever I would feel uh, that it was getting tough or I was beginning to get frustrated, I would think about them and realize that if they're not giving up and they didn't give up, that I wouldn't give up either. And so that sense of mission carried me through all my time. And it was really a privilege and honor 
to be able to advocate on behalf of our veterans and their families and to honor those who did not make it back. And that's the way that I still reflect on it. And I've said that I will continue to advocate and fight for our veterans and their families as long as I live. And I will continue to be a advocate for them and a spokesperson as long as I feel like I can make an important contribution. One last question before I turn it over to Jeremy. I love the title of your book. It shouldn't be this hard to serve your country. A lot of our listeners are in medical school. They're in their 20s. They're beginning their life. What's your advice to those who are interested in serving their country? The title of the book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, really has a dual meaning. It's about and for veterans that are just really incredible people. Less than 1% of Americans now serve in the military, and the rest of us rely upon them to go out and protect us. And when you go and you have an injury or you're disabled during service, when you come back, it really should not be this hard to get the care that you need. This should be a system that provides the very best that our country can for these Americans. But the second meaning of the book is about public service. And I believe that our country relies upon people who have had experiences in the private sector who are willing to go and to spend a few years serving their country in public service. And I worry that with the environment that we all see today, where the environment is so toxic and people who go serve are personally attacked and, and you know, their reputations are, are ruined by going and serving in public service, that people may no longer be willing to do that. And that would really be a loss for our country in the way that government operates if people are not willing to serve their country by serving in these roles. So I very, very much hope, and the reason why I wrote the book was to make sure that we have a chance to have a reset of the environment in Washington, that we create an environment that respects and honors those who do public service, whether it's in the military or in the government, and that we create an environment where people can succeed in these roles because it is vitally important to the way government operates today. Do you feel uh, it's easier overall to drive change in the uh, government or the private sector? And uh, you know what changes are easier to make in the government sector versus the private sector? Like which changes are easier to make in the private sector? Well, I think that uh, in in government in the public sector, um, change is often slower and more laborious, but when change is made, it can have a much greater impact. And when it comes to healthcare in particular, with more than 50% of healthcare being paid for by the public sector and regulations being set by the government, uh, the private sector in many ways waits and sees what government does before they commit and move in a clear direction. So I think that the public sector changes, the government changes, while often difficult to accomplish, are very important and are watched by the rest of the industry. The private sector still has the ability to move quicker and to move in a more nimble way that allows innovation to happen. So I think that a lot of the 
experimentation and sort of new discoveries in the way that we manage healthcare will continue to happen from the private sector. And that's why I think it's so important that there be public-private partnerships so that one can take advantage of what each of these systems has to contribute to the overall improvement of health for the citizens of the country. How do you think opinions of the VA changed uh, when you were in office and even or when you had your role and even since then? I took very seriously the issue of being transparent, of making myself available to the press and to the public, to getting out there and explaining not only what was working in the VA, but what the problems of the VA were, that many of the problems that faced VA were problems that span administrations so that you can't blame them on any particular political party, but they were decades uh, in dealing with. And so part of what I hope that I contributed was a awareness and openness of what the problems were, but also what the plan and solutions were, and that the progress that was being made needed to be publicly reported and be transparently reported, whether it was good or bad. And um, I believe that that is the way that public organizations in government need to be running. And I hope that that set a course that is hard to reverse. One of the reasons why I wrote the book was to make sure that future leaders could understand what I was thinking where I was making progress, what this formula for modernizing the VA looked like, and areas that I continued to struggle in with recommendations on how we might approach this in the future. If you had some lasting advice for veterans and their families in regards to their health care and kind of how they approach it, and even, you know, the, the mental health aspects of it, what would that be? I think that uh, the advice that I give to veterans and their families is similar to the advice I give to my private patients, and that is is that you really need to be your own advocate for your own health care. You need to control your own health care decisions and get as educated as possible and make sure you have control of your data, and that you need to be able to speak out when you're not having your needs met, and you need to be able to ask for help when you're not getting the type of help that you are seeking. And so being passive in today's healthcare system and environment is usually not a good thing. In particular, when it comes to mental health needs, I think that that advice of, of asking for help and finding people that are willing to help and saying when you're not getting the help, I think is even more important because the behavioral healthcare field just is not nearly as advanced as we see in some of the more physical illness uh, parts of our healthcare system. David, your dedication to those who've dedicated their lives to the safety of our nation is powerful. Your commitment to mission and purpose inspirational. I hope that all Americans will have the chance to listen to this podcast and hear your words and read your book. Thank you so much for all you've done for our nation. Thank you, appreciate it.
Before we go, let's take a few minutes to hear some of the many suggestions we've received from our listeners who weighed in on the question, how can the U.S. government best improve healthcare? Each of the listeners wrote about their own medical problems and experiences. We heard from Jessica Haig-Jones, who has been receiving expensive epilepsy treatments for more than 20 years. She said she would not be here if not for her doctor who treated the patient, not the illness. Jessica urged the government and insurance companies to reimburse doctors appropriately for the time it takes to care for patients as individuals. Stacy Lampkin told us that she would have gone bankrupt from her cancer treatments had she purchased a high deductible health insurance plan through her employer. She hoped that the government would ban these low premium plans that don't adequately cover worst case scenario medical problems. Finally, we heard from a physician, Morali Taluri, who was hospitalized in 2015 for a cardiac procedure in the same facility where she had worked for 20 years. Following the procedure, she needed assistance to go to the bathroom and had to ring for two hours for help. When the nurse came, she said she was too busy documenting to assist. She concluded that this is the only healthcare system in the world that is run by accountants and attorneys. She urged the government to return control to physicians and patients. Robbie, what are your thoughts on these suggestions? Patients are becoming increasingly unhappy with the American healthcare system. Like Jessica, I recognize that the best medical care takes time, particularly for patients with chronic and complex medical problems. As a nation, we overpay for interventional procedures and underpay for spending time delving deep into the medical issues people have and the impact it has on their lives. The government can play a role by altering how it reimburses doctors who care for patients covered under Medicare, but its efforts will be opposed by various physician specialty societies. Like Stacy, I believe that these low price, reduced benefit options work great until you become sick. Then the out-of-pocket expense and drug co-payments can drive you into bankruptcy. That is why I believe we need, as a nation, to implement approaches that not only improve quality but lower cost. And that will demand we change how healthcare is structured, reimbursed, technologically enabled, and led. Finally, I sympathize with Dr. Tallori. Having been hospitalized after I fractured my leg in an accident three years ago, I too needed help getting to the bathroom. Feeling helpless is a terrible sensation. I concur that the current healthcare system meets the needs of just about everyone, from drug companies to hospitals to insurance companies, that is everyone except the patient. And changing that will require government legislation. Robbie, as we end season three, what are some of your observations and reactions to what we've heard? Jeremy, it's been an amazing seven months. We've had some truly remarkable people on our Fixing Healthcare podcast. Let me offer three observations about this season. First, Healthcare remains a huge issue for Americans, and the problems will only get worse without government intervention. For over half of this nation, the cost of medical care now exceeds their ability to pay, with a growing number of bankruptcies happening as a consequence. Out-of-pocket expenses, drug co-payments, and surprise out-of-network bills leave families at tremendous risk. With the epidemic of chronic disease growing and infectious disease epidemics looming, People are afraid. As our guests explain, there's much the government can do, 
but little that is happening. Second, the political process today has become excessively partisan. None of our guests were optimistic about bipartisan legislation designed to improve the health of our nation or efforts to make medical care affordable for the average person. It's clear the progress is being impeded by lobbyists from what I like to call the legacy players, or more specifically, the drug industry, the hospital industry, and the insurance industry. Physicians through the national specialty societies are just as guilty, although as individual doctors, they too are being negatively impacted and their patients harmed. My best guess is that things will need to get worse before voters become so irate that elected officials have little choice but to take action. Finally, there's reason for optimism. As this season's guest proved, there are people willing to take action, even at personal sacrifice, to address the healthcare issues of today. To that end, I'd like to thank David Blumenthal and James Carville for their efforts to educate Americans and their decades of dedication to public service. I'd like to thank John Delaney, Eric Squalwell, for stepping forward on the stage as the candidates for the Democratic nomination debated and telling the nation the truths it needed to hear. I'd like to recognize Shem for helping generations of doctors understand that they need to speak up and take action on behalf of their patients and their profession. I'd like to offer my admiration for the courage Tyler Schultz and David Shulkin showed in standing up for what they believed. Ultimately, as President Lincoln said in his Gettysburg Address, our nation needs a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And when it does that, our country heals and becomes stronger. Once again, thanks to Jessica Hagg-Jones, Stacey Lampkin, Murali Taluri, and everyone who has participated in the Fixing Healthcare survey on robertperlmd.com. Next month, we'll begin season four. In it, we'll bring in guests with big names and big ideas. We'll hope you'll join us. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on iTunes or other podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Together, we can make American healthcare once again the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.